You're listening to episode 145 of 88 Cups of Tea with Yin Chang. Am I doing this right? <laughs> Hi, I'm your host, Yin Chang, and thanks for joining me on 88 Cups of Tea. This podcast is created to leave you feeling motivated from interviews with storytellers, where we learn how they create opportunities for a successful career without losing sight of the values that make us human. Woo, that was a really long run on sentence. Hey, what's up, storytellers? Before I introduce today's guest, I have a huge announcement to make. We are running a contest from today until the end of the month on Sunday, September 30th at 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, where two of you will win our limited edition 88 Cups of Tea tote bag that was printed for our three-year anniversary and our 88 Cups of Tea pop socket. You'll also win exactly 45 seconds of airtime to talk about your current writing project in the introduction of Tamara Pierce's upcoming episode releasing in October. So how exactly do you enter the contest? Just head over to 88cupsoftea.com slash contest and read the directions there to collect as many points as you can for a chance to win. Again, that's 88cupsoftea.com slash contest and you have till Sunday, September 30th at 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time to enter the contest. Good luck and have so much fun. Now on to today's conversation, we have one of your most requested guests to be featured on the show, the one and only literary agent, Holly Root. Holly has launched over two dozen New York Times bestsellers before founding Root Literary in 2017, where she represents authors of fiction for adults, teens, and children, along with select nonfiction. Root Literary combines a big agency business perspective with a boutique hands-on approach to literary representation. Their clients benefit from their agents' proven skills in identifying talent, negotiating advantageous deals, and advocating for their books all the way from submission to publication. Root Literary offers their clients broad-based industry insights as well as individualized strategic thinking to empower each author to define and pursue their own unique path to success. In today's episode, Holly walks us through how she first fell in love with the world of storytelling, what she studied in school, and how her path led her to become one of the most successful literary agents today. I had the best time deep diving into the entrepreneurial side of her starting Root Literary Agency. I'm a huge fan of stories about the startup life, and this conversation was seriously getting me so excited. We also touch on what Root Literary does for their clients and how they embrace and encourage the business side of their author clients. We also go through some really great listener questions like, what's on your current manuscript wish list? Any personal pet peeves on queries? How does she strategize career planning with her authors? Aside from writing, what is it about a client that she looks for or connects with in order to build a long-term author-agent relationship? And once she's signed a client, how does she approach plans for their career as an author? How do authors protect themselves from predatory agents or even identify literary agencies that aren't having the author's best interests in mind? What are her suggestions for writers that are on submission with editors? Now let's jump right in. Hey everyone, we have Holly Root with us today. I know y'all are really excited about Holly on the show. So many of you have requested to have her on the show and Holly and I have been keeping in touch trying to make this happen and she's been so generous with her time. Holly, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. How are you? 
Thank you so much for having me on. I'm happy to be here. I'm really pumped. Uh, first of all, so many people say the best things about you. And normally in our Facebook group, I ask listeners if they have any listener questions they might have for future upcoming guests. And your post was popping. You had so oh. many people commenting left and right. So we actually won't be able to get through all of them. So I selected about four. So just letting you know you're super loved and super popular in this community. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm really, really excited about this. So Holly, how did you first fall in love with the world of storytelling? Well, I think like most people who are in publishing, I was a really voracious young reader. Unlike probably most people in publishing, my love of books actually got me disciplinary action in preschool. (laughs) I was... I was such an early reader that um, my parents were kind of trying to stall me from going to, you know, actual school, which I ended up doing really early. I was young when I started kindergarten and young when I graduated high school and the whole thing. But when my parents were kind of trying to slow me down a bit, family lore, obviously, I don't remember all of this, is that on my first day of preschool, I took with me a book that I was loving at that point in time, which was one of the Little House on the Prairie books, which is not a normal comfort object for the four-year-old class at preschool. So they were very confused and thought that maybe I had stolen it. And so it caused a a bit of an international incident. So my um, obsessive (laughs) and precocious love of books has been uh, getting me into hot water for a long time. Oh my gosh. Okay. So when you were in love with reading, did you ever have an interest in writing or it's always been just love of reading? So, I mean, I think everybody who loves books, right, is like, maybe I'll be a writer. So when I when I went to college, I was a double major initially in pre-med and English. Damn. And the thinking was, and this is like so dumb, I loved Robin Cook as a teenager and I was like, I'll be a doctor who writes books. Or... <laughs> Like, literally, that's what research is for. Or you could just write books. Um, So at some point along the way, I figured out that, yeah, that was maybe like a long way to go for that uh, particular goal. And that um, I did not need to be pre-med. I could just be an English major. And then in college, I discovered that while I was a very capable technician, I did not have the storytelling drive that I think writers sort of are constantly processing the world through writing and storytelling. And that was not how I found myself interacting creatively. Like it just wasn't the thing that kept me going. I wanted to discover other people's stories. I didn't have that strong drive to tell them myself. So I feel pretty confident saying that I will not ever write a book, but I do not make the same promise about med school. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty awesome. I'm so impressed by that. Okay, so obviously I'm a creative person, but also very much I have interest in the entrepreneurial journey. And Mm -hmm. I think what you've created for yourself is phenomenal and just so badass. You starting your own company, especially a woman in this world right now when a lot of us are just coming up together. Mm -hmm. This is definitely more than ever our time. Before I dive into that creation of Root Literary Agency, I don't think many people know that being a literary agent is like a career. Yeah, I didn't. Yeah, I didn't know that it was a job when I I mean, when I graduated college. So I've been in the agency side of the business for like 15 years now, I guess. The world has changed a lot in that span of time, which isn't ultimately that long, all things considered. But the rate of change is really fast. So when I got out of college, I knew I wanted to work 
in publishing somehow, but I wasn't sure exactly what that looked like or like how you went about it. So okay, I'm going to interject here really quick, Holly. Yeah. How would you know that you wanted to be in the publishing industry? Um, because I realized that someone had to make books happen. Like there must be people <laughs> who did that. And I knew I didn't want to teach. I went to a, a religiously affiliated college in Arkansas that no one has ever heard of. And they were like, well, that's weird. Because um, most of my fellow English majors wanted to teach or write or, you know, something like that. And so it was very weird. Like they didn't quite know what to do with me. And I'd done some internships like at the local paper and things like that, just trying to get a sense of working with other people's words. And so I got married right out of college. Um, I'm Southern, which is less weird like there than it is. So I've been married a very, very long time, 16 years in January, which people oh, are sometimes well, congratulations. like, congratulations. Yeah. So we were married and trying to figure out like kind of what we would do next. And so moved back to my hometown. My husband's an actor and he already had some acting work lined up in Nashville. Ooh. So we moved back there. I knew there was Christian publishing. I didn't quite know like what that would look like. Again, like I just sort of was like editorial because those are the people who work with the words. Mm -hmm. um, and so I got in doing that and discovered very quickly that like that was actually a very bad fit for me. Um, I get less smart the more times I've read something. I'm a great first reader and like a terrible 10th reader. So and it it's funny when I talk to people in the industry about this, I feel like that first reader or rereader divide is a really good tell of whether somebody is like meant to be an agent or an editor. Like my editor friends all have, oh, this touchstone book for me that I reread every year. It's like a ritual. It like centers me. I go back to it and it like reminds me why I do this. And like, I am just not, I'm not a rereader. Like that is not, I, there's like so many books in the world and how like not enough time and not enough eyeballs. I'm like, why would I reread? And so I just was not, that was not me. I was also very bad at working on things other people told me to work on, which again is, you know, when you're an editor, you're working toward a mandate for your company. And some of that was that, you know, I was working at a religious publisher. And so was, you know, the 15th book that season about the nativity, like, is that going to necessarily feel different and fresh and new? No, like, do those books need to be edited well and rigorously and with a great deal of love? Absolutely. So it was no knock on the kinds of books, but just a indicator for me that that maybe wasn't my perfect fit. And I worked there for about a year and a half and then took the Turnip Truck Express to New York City, where my husband and I just busted in and were like, hello, New York. Anyone? Anyone? And I, I, yeah, like we knew no one. We had no connections. I called my old advisor from my college and was like, do we have anybody working in New York publishing? And he was like, I think we have somebody who works at a paper company in Texas. And I was like, cool, that is not... So much helpful for me. So we just literally, like I sent in amazing cover letters, like the best cover letters I could possibly write and my little resume and was just hoping for the best. And I don't know if we would be sitting here talking if not for the fact that the human resources director at the William Morris Agency was from Tennessee. And I feel like he plucked me from the pile and was like, this kid's got moxie, brought me in and there's this crazy old program, which they still do. This was pre-merger, so not William Morris Endeavor, but William Morris Agency. They have this crazy mailroom program where you... I heard about that through the acting side for um, yeah. just, just agents overall representing talent. But it's the same thing, I'm assuming, right? For literary right. agents. Yeah. Oh, my so gosh. Because it's, it's just for the company overall. So you come in, 
it's also funny because you can get hired there as an assistant if there's no agent trainees like lurking in the wings, mm. like eager for that desk. You can just get hired there like with an interview. So it's hilarious to me that you like go through all these hoops and then they put you in the mailroom. <laughs> you're like, okay, sure. There is a reason for it, which I do understand now that I've done it. But at the time I was like, what is this? So you do all these interviews and then there's like a panel interview that's your final one where they bring you in and there's people from every department and they like interview you en masse. So you have like eight agents, fully fledged agents asking you questions about what? like why you should be a Morris trainee. And it was like, I mean, it's a great. That is, is so like, nerve wracking, like all it, at the same time. It works for a reason, though, because like if you can stand up to that, like oh, there is true. a good shot that you will be capable and confident enough to like make a go of it. And then the whole idea behind the mailroom is that you have to make opportunities for yourself. Like you cannot if you sit around and are like, well, I'm just going to deliver the mail, then no, you will not learn anything. But if you like listen to conversations and, you know, look at the things that come through the office that are appropriate for you to look at and reach out to the people who are in the departments you want to be on. Like it's an, it, it is designed to create people who, who create their own opportunities. That is and so fascinating. I feel like I'm listening to Entourage or something. Oh, so that, and the, the most amazing thing about it, like for sure, is that no one where I was from had like the least idea what I was talking about. People, when my parents were like, oh yeah, she's working at William Morris. People were like, isn't that the cigarette company? Like, oh, okay. Nope. No. So there was a lot of culture shock associated with that because there were not a lot of us from tiny, you know, factory towns in the South in that program. But I wasn't there that long. Part of like teaching people to be self-starters is that you do run the risk that they will realize that they could go to other companies with those talents. And you're basically kind of waiting around for people to clear a desk so that you can become an assistant for someone in the department you want. And so a lot of it has to do with like staffing levels. Like, is there a desk open in the department you want to be in? And unlike a lot of people in there, I was really clear cut that I wanted to do books. I didn't want to do TV lit or Mopic lit or like any talent, like none of those desks were what I was there for. And so with that limited range of upward mobility, I just kind of kept an eye out for other jobs. And that's how I ended up moving over to Trident. And I worked with Jenny Bent and Scott Miller, who are amazing oh. and still friends and mentors of mine. Um, and then came up, that's where I did most of my like coming up through the ranks and then left to go to Waxman agency about three years after that. Oh, wow. Okay. This is so fascinating. I'm just like, oh my gosh, I just want to open up your brain and look at it. I'm like, this is glorious. That's so TMI. No, no, no. It's like a really classic track. It's yeah. so crazy. Okay. So I'm going to jump back just like a few <laughs> topics when you mentioned that when you're in the mailroom in that infamous uh, William Morris mailroom, it's so brilliant. You're right. Because it just shows who has their own gumption to just create opportunities for themselves. So mm -hmm. in your at your time when you were there, are there any specific examples where you made a very specific choice to create an opportunity for yourself while in the mailroom to get notice? Oh, yeah. I mean, all the time. Like you, you know, it was even stuff like volunteering for like we would do these screenings at night for agency clients to come see like the new movie that was done. And sometimes those were movies adapted from William Morris client books. And so if there was a book to film adaptation, I knew that the agent who handled that book would be there. 
And so I would always sign up to work for those screenings. And so you're literally like handing popcorn to fancy people, but just that proximity and then the ability to like stick around and be like, hey, if you have any reading that you need help with, like I'm really passionate about books. So just looking for those kinds of opportunities to be in the right place at the right time and like make those connections. I mean, people often dog it as being like Machiavellian. And sometimes I do too, frankly, because it's funny to joke about the worst version of that. But there is a way that you can do that that is like ethical and true to your own North Star and that is not about taking advantage of people or situations, but just about learning to anticipate other people's needs and learning to be helpful in a way that doesn't feel creepy or gross or networky. But those are all skills that I still use now. Looking for opportunities for connection, looking for points of commonality, looking for places where you can anticipate a need. Like it works for a reason. There are trappings of it that are not great, but like there's a reason that those programs endure at all those big agencies. Okay, that is really, really eye opening. From there, when you kind of learn those skills of just putting your best foot forward and finding opportunities for yourself. Uh, You mentioned that you went through working with several other agents before then getting to where you are now. How did that come about with Root Literary Agency? What was that transition like? What was the idea behind you wanting to start your own agency? Anything that you feel comfortable sharing? Obviously, there's some things that you're not legally allowed to share. Please (laughs) don't. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that the situation that I was in, I would never tell someone starting out to like open their own agency because you don't know what you don't know. And Mm. you would like actively be dangerous to people as an agent. I think if anything, people are like probably a little too quick to do that. And that's, again, I come out of this very classic track, right? Where like you come up, you're, you are someone's apprentice, you like learn the ropes and you develop your list you get to a place where you've mostly seen things like there aren't that many surprises in a given deal. There aren't that many things that surprise me anymore. And so for me, it was really important to feel like I had gotten to that level that my knowledge base was broad enough that it was okay for me to be out on my own. But again, I believe in the system. Like I really do think the system of like apprenticeships works. And I've been at a lot of different kinds of agencies too. So all of that came with me when I started my own thing. So in terms of like why I left and when and how, I had been at Waxman for 10 years and it had been a really great fit. I kind of was, at the time that I started, I was the only person kind of doing what I did, but I was able to learn a ton from my colleagues who were doing, you know, largely like big nonfiction and there, there are really interesting points of distinction between representing fiction and representing nonfiction, like just in how you sell it and how you manage it and like the different pieces that go into it. Like it's mostly sold on proposal, whereas initially, like for debut fiction, you're mostly working with completed manuscripts. So like your pipeline looks totally different. Your negotiations look really different. How you price things is different. Like there's just a ton that we could take from each other. So, and then it gave me a totally clear lane. Like I was the only one doing young adult fiction at the time when I started, there were just four of us. So it gave me space to have my own lane, but also the support and resources of an established agency. And, you know, they were doing these crazy, like multi-million dollar deals for like people that are super famous. <laughs> and then here comes my like debut author and they get the same boilerplate as that person for whom like the book is the third sideline of that month, you know, so I had the opportunity to benefit my clients by being at that agency and also to learn from their insights and expertise and 
to really take away a lot from that. It was a really good partnership. The best way to describe it really is just it was a graduation, not a divorce. I just got to a place where it was like, okay, I'm ready. And that had always been, I'd always wanted to have my own agency at some point. And it got to a point where I felt the time was right. And I had enough experience underneath me and the client list that I wanted to be able to go out and do it in a really meaningful way. So that's kind of how that came about. I listen to a lot of podcasts and the ones I listen to are all entrepreneurial ones. I'm just obsessed mm-hmm. with just hearing people's stories, especially startups. And a lot of people talk about like how much runway you have in the beginning where yeah. it's something where I hear people have a bunch saved up, you know, whether it's enough for two months or three months or six months or even a year just from their mm-hmm. own personal savings. Some people raise capital just to start yeah. the company. Did you feel like, okay, I'll be okay for like three months or six months or like, oh gosh, if I don't, I don't make it by (laughs) three months, I'm, I'm effed. Yeah. That's scary. No, it is. It's the, it is easily the hardest thing I've ever done. Um, and really badass too. Thank you. So here's part of it, right? So Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times when people open agencies, it's like them and they're gonna like just bootstrap it and like work from home for a little while and like make a go of it. And I started up with employees in a space. And so we just had a different level of overhead because we had that before. I had a colleague out here before and I had a space that I was working out of. And so we kept all of that. So I started with a level of overhead that like I I couldn't do that. I mean, I was very fortunate that I worked for a company that understood what it is like to be the person leaving as well as to be the corporate owner. And so I continue to participate financially in my pipeline. So all the deals that I did, like all the books that you know about right now are Waxman level books. So like we are both sharing in the successes of those books. Oh, okay. Um, But I continue to financially participate. So for the first year, I basically ran the numbers on like, could I run an agency off my share of my commissions? I was basically running the agency on like a split of a split, right? So like as agents... When agents work for an agency, you take that 15% commission and you divide it up between the agency and the agent. Um, Oh, okay. Okay. That makes sense. Sorry. That let me, I I realized that was probably like a little too inside baseball. Yeah. So generally speaking, unless like I've worked places where you're on a salary, which is a totally different set of math. And generally speaking, if you're on a salary at an agency, like when you leave your pipeline stays with the agency, not with you. Yeah, that makes sense. Yes. Yes. But because I was an independent contractor before, I continued to participate in my pipeline down the road. But that, you know, those deals that were done at Waxman are Waxman deals. And so the agency has a piece of that. And then I also have a piece of that. And so my understanding and then like for sure what did actually happen was that I would be running the company for the first probably six to nine months entirely on the split commissions from my old agency. So I had to be at a place where I was frankly like making enough money to do that without like, and still be fine. And I'm very fortunate that that it was all fine. But you know, I mean, we started doing deals right away because I have this existing client list. I represent a lot of novelists. And so it's a lot of re-ups where like everything is going well. And so their publisher wants to keep working with them. And so we just do a new deal that started up over the summer. I kept doing deals right up to the very end at Waxman. That was part of what I had promised them that because I continued to participate financially, there was no reason to take deals like hoard deals 
I get that. I feel like it really did. I like, this is what I mean about like, it was incredibly fair and incredibly, like I wanted to go out the way we'd always gone on. And so I really did do deals where I think our first day was May 1. And I think I did a deal April 15th, like all the way up to the end. It was really important to me to leave with integrity. And so I just did deals all the way up. And then after I left, then new deals, like as they happened, came in. But I don't think, I mean, I think we got paid on like some audio rights deals, which are pretty fast because the contracts are pretty simple. But I don't think we got paid on a new rootlet deal until like December. And I started in May. And that was even fast. Because when you leave an agency and start a new one, you have to do all new boilerplates. So all your contracts with the publishers reset, basically. Okay, so let me ask you super quick, because for me, I have a background in acting. I've had talent agents and I hear all the time when my friends from whether it's managements, uh, managers leaving companies and starting their own or jumping into talent agencies or jumping into casting. It sounds super similar in that way, Mm -hmm. but it's never that clean like it's never that pure, like your experience sounds really rare. And I'm only, again, I'm only saying this from an actor's point of view. So I don't know how common this is in the world of writing and publishing, but from my experience, I'm like, damn, like you always hear there's so much beef and drama that goes down. And like, I'm not even me as a talent who had the right to leave a manager who was completely taking advantage of me, threatened to sue me when I had the right to leave. So that's like between talent and a representative. I can't imagine from that representative going to another company, how much scarier that would have been all these threats coming in. So I'm just like, this was such a beautiful, oh my, it's like, what, what is that called? Conscious uncoupling. Have you heard yes. of that? Yes. <laughs> I like to imagine myself as Gwyneth Paltrow. Yes. Okay. Can I be the Coldplay guy? <laughs> Absolutely. 100%. Yeah. I mean, it really is a credit to everyone involved, right? That like, we had an amazing run. Again, I have like only good things to say. And, you know, we're like still in touch with all of my colleagues from that time of my life. I think it doesn't have to be as acrimonious as it is if everybody's fairly straightforward. And, you know, this is like you're in relationship, right? Like this is an ongoing conversation. Like they could see the numbers. I could see the numbers. Everybody could see the math. This was not a crazy left field situation. And also, you know, I was leaving to start my own thing, which is a fellow entrepreneur, I think, my former colleagues understood what that drive is like. The thing is, like, you can't know until you do it how hard it is. And I don't know if I could have been dissuaded, even if I could have known, like, how much of my time I would spend on the phone with the California Labor Board, figuring out how to do, like, file 722B. Even still, I don't think I could have been dissuaded from it, which is a sign that it's the right thing to do. Oh, my God. I'm like so excited right now. This is giving me life. Like, I haven't had an entrepreneurial conversation in quite a while. So thank you for this. (laughs) You're giving me life right now. You have no idea. I'm like, I'm totally blushing. I'm just like, yeah. (laughs) Weird to me though, because so this is one of my like hobby horses and something that we talk to our authors about all the time. Like authors are entrepreneurs. And I think that is a good point. Now I feel terrible. Okay, never mind. No, no, no. I, I think a lot of authors don't think of themselves that way or haven't been empowered to think of themselves that way. That's one of the things that as an agency, we're like really focused on and we're building out a lot of things internally to support that idea that our authors are business people and they're the only ones who can do the creative part. But a huge part of having like a lasting career is not being afraid to like look at and think about the business side of it, too. And we want to give our authors as many resources and tools for their toolkits to help make it easier for them to 
step into that and own it and claim that mantle for themselves. Oh, oh my gosh, I'm getting chills. Holly, stop it. <laughs> like I now I'm just like, oh, I just have more questions. Okay. I want to get into that. Yep. But <laughs> jumping back again to your entrepreneurial journey, I'm just in such awe of you. I I mean it seemed like you just had a natural knack of knowing business, almost like you had an MBA from a business school or something. For me, my mom is a badass businesswoman and my sisters as well. So at least I have a hub of people who are really badass with their business thinking cap on. But for me as an actor, I do have a natural knack of some business, but not as much as like my mom and my sister. So for you... If it wasn't through your previous agency, did you have someone from your own circle? Like, was it your husband who may have like a natural knack with business or was it, you know, yourself and you researched everywhere? Was it your parents? I'm just curious how the hell you know all this stuff. I'm like blown away. (laughs) It's very kind. I mean, I think what it is, is that I am insanely detail oriented and like obsessed with understanding how things work. And also so much of, again, I, I think this is personal. So there's a lot of different agenting styles. Yeah. But mine has always been like really driven by math. I will almost always have done like sort of a proto PL for myself of like what I think a pro like I will value a project before I take it out so that I kind of have a sense oh. of like where some where my sense of like the market for something is. So like I'm not scared of numbers. I'm not scared of math. And that's a that's a learned thing. Coming up through school, I feel like I went to school like in the peak, like girls don't do math and definitely internalized a lot of that. But as my own small hammer smashed to the patriarchy have worked as an adult, I like read math books, like not like, you know, math textbook, but like books about like math theory and like things like that, just to make it just to unscarify it, you know, like, and it, it, it pays dividends. I worked on some business books. I've read a lot of business books, but a lot of it to me is just the business of running an agency and the business of being an agent are not that dissimilar um, like the goals are pretty aligned. So I also just like paid a lot of attention to how places I worked at ran. I think it again goes back to that idea from that very first day in the William Morris mailroom realizing, oh, the only way I'm going to find stuff out is if I seek it out. So like seeking out the people who had access to those levers and just paying attention. A lot of times it's not even like specifically asking for information so much as it is just being a self-starter and like volunteering for that that yucky task that nobody wants of like double checking everybody's employment agreements that they came in right and that they got filed. Like nobody wants to do that. But like, Mm -hmm. if you do guess what, you know, what an employment agreement looks like from both sides. So like, there are a lot of things like that where just paying attention and being diligent. And then you move forward with all of that knowledge as you progress through your career. I was also really lucky. A lot of people I've worked with in the past now have their own agencies. And so I did have a great network of people who'd done it before that I could reach out to and say like, hey, what underlying corporate structure did you choose? How do you have this set up? What did you do about that? Like, And why did you, did you go with that? Yeah. Yeah. And like, and sometimes, I mean, it's funny, like you realize as you're making phone calls and like also thinking about all the different places, like there are a lot of different ways to do things. And it was really important to me to like do it right Because the number of people I talked to who were like, yeah, I tried that and it didn't work. And they're even, I mean, as much as I tried, like there still have been things where I'm like, yeah, that actually didn't end up working. And some of it is that our business model is so weird. Like when you talk to service providers, they're like, so you don't market or publicize yourself. Like you don't spend any money on that. And you're like, no, no. In fact, maybe less would be good. 
like, don't come find us. And they're like, you don't keep open public office hours. And you're like, no. And they're like, and you don't want your number listed in the phone book. And I'm like, no, I do not. (laughs) (laughs) So we're a very atypical business. And when you try to explain, like, even down to we use a, a CRM, uh, contacts relationship management system. So it's it integrates like all of our contact. It's an information sharing service so that if I have a bunch of interactions with an editor and Taylor needs to know like, oh, what are what's that person's contact information? Like it's all right there. If oh, Molly- okay, I got that confused with something like Slack. I thought it was like a group yeah. chat well, thing, we, but no, we it's do a- that too. Oh, okay, <laughs> okay. So we're we're teched out. We have like leaned in on because they're they're. The oh, problem- I'm gonna ask you for recommendations right after oh, this, yeah. by the way. So please share. Yes. Uh, <laughs> like a big part of the problem in other agencies that I've seen is like siloing where you have people with intense expertise and knowledge and connections, but it's all locked up in their brain. And so in order to get access to that, you have to go ask them and say like, who do you like for this? And what do you like for that? Versus it being more democratized where, you know, my, I I want my relationships and contacts to be accessible to my colleagues um, and vice versa, because that way we're not duplicating each other's efforts. You know, we're all going to have our own relationships, but like, if it saves so much time and it's much more every focused. Time, yeah. Every time that we don't have to ask each other for someone's email is like time we're spending on our clients. And there is so much friction in like your typical agency just because like they are these legacy businesses, right? Like when I started as an assistant, I was still printing manuscripts and putting them in boxes and taping the cover letter to the oh, top damn. and then sending it to the editors. So like there is still these like these legacy companies have so much like institutional paper derived knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, And we have the luxury of being brand new. And so if I can start with this early, and have it be shared from the beginning as much as it's possible, then that will only help us be nimbler and more efficient so that we can maximize what we're able to do for our clients. Oh my God, my mind is blown. My God, Holly. Oh, you're such a genius. Okay, so Slack or Asana or, um, I mean, there's even a thing called Trello. Which ones do you guys use? So we played around with Trello and Asana and like Pipedrive, but we kind of figured out that, which is like a pipelining service. Um, Our CRM has a pipeline aspect as well, which is kind of great. But even that, so when we were on the phone with them getting set up, they were like, so your clients are not actually the people that get they're not sell like you don't get money from them and we were like no no we do not and they were like okay so the client and the guy on the phone was like very excited because he's like this is so crazy and interesting he's like so it's not you're not like prospecting and we were like no and they're okay so the client is almost like the product and we were like that feels weird but yes we're selling their work so like it figuring out like what the relationships were and like we custom built some software for like rights management. And so, cause Damn. that's all credit to Taylor Haggerty, who's like a total genius. So we like figuring out, like having to figure out like what each of these little things mean, like what is a book? How do you define a book? What qualities are intrinsic to a book versus to a deal versus to a client? Like all of this stuff, we, I feel like we can see the matrix now wow. because we had to work so hard setting everything up. Um, but anyway, when, we were looking at all this stuff. We found that like for our purposes, like something like Trello or Asana would have been great if we had everyone's buy-in, like if we were using it with like clients and editors, but that we can't really dictate that. Like we can't go to our clients and be like, Hey, could you do all of your project management through Asana for us? Okay, that's true. And, that's true. <laughs> you know, maybe with like a particular client who's already leaning that way. Like I know we use some services like Boxer with some people who are like, 
tricky to get on the phone, but it's really easy to do it that way. So that's like, like that walkie talkie some- app, right? Yeah. Yes. 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 Cool. Yeah. Um, it's fun. We, you know, so we do some stuff like that, like depending on like what the client needs, obviously, but for as like a wholesale solution, we found that that wasn't that efficient. We just do a lot. We do a lot through um, file sharing and Slack and, um, and then through our CRM, those are like our primary and then our, um, our like custom database that we built. Okay. So I've been trying to use a little bit of Asana and trying to get used to it. Is there a reason why you specifically avoided Asana? Um, we just felt like so much of what we do is outward facing. Like okay, gotcha. there, there wasn't really like we would just be moving. It felt like make work. And that was something we were trying to avoid, like creating extra complications. Like if we're already going to go have to email the editor and be like, hey, do we have a marketing plan for that yet? Like then we don't want to have to email the editor and click a thing in Asana being like we emailed the editor. You know, it just okay. felt like a step. Okay. Um, so, you, so you recommend Slack over that? For us. But okay, like gotcha. For, if, if you control your own, and I know some of my authors who who work in podcasting have played around. I think Trello has been what they've ended up with. But, okay. um, but if you have more control over your own like workflows, I think probably for a lot of my authors, Asana or Trello or something like that would be really great. Yeah. Um, and I think some of them do use it. But for us, because so much of what we do, like this is the dirty secret of agenting, right? We don't actually do anything. Like we can't make things happen. We can influence and suggest and manage and handle and smooth and shape but we can't we ultimately don't decide like I can't like someone at the publishing house has to send me the file I can't make it myself you know so there's a certain amount of for us it's about taking that fact like that is the fact our job is to like manage all of these this web of relationships and streamline it as much as possible and take back as much control of our work lives as we can, which is sort of a constantly moving um, target. But there you go. Okay, that's super helpful. I'm also going to list every resource that you've mentioned in your show notes page, just in case any of the listeners want to check it out. Mm. Um, and what I, I'm super curious as well, before moving on to like more author talk, uh, yeah. building a team, I'm stuck with that right now. So just, I feel like it sounds like everyone on your team is really solid. I mean, you kept mentioning that person, Taylor, who was like, yes. it clearly has been such a huge person and helped to pivot your company in a really wonderful way. So if you have any advice, I would love to hear your experience. I mean, so week two, I had to run, I had to run payroll. Like I had a, I had a payroll to meet. So like make a ton of money and don't leave until you do. I mean, that's like, honestly, my only advice in terms of how I did it. So we hired on our first assistant sort of by accident. She was just super, super impressive. So when the company started, it was me and Taylor. And there was a lot of sitting on the floor and a lot of weeping because we were trying to do this insane lift while also running our lists and like being agents because you can't stop doing that because your clients <laughs> need you to be an agent. So there were like a lot of long hours, a lot of long hours. It's like a great reminder that agents are not paid by the hour and boy, were we not during oh. that span. Um, but we were building something that really mattered to us. And so we made it through that first summer, which was the hardest like three month span of my entire life, including both times I had babies. And then we got to September and this young woman had contacted us wanting to do an informational interview. She was a student at USC and she came in and was so impressive. I was like, oh man, I wish she was already graduated. And Taylor, again, who's like, if you're getting the sense that Taylor is the secret sauce, like that is maybe true. She said, there's no way that that woman doesn't work 
while she's at school. <laughs> and I was like, that's a great point. And so we reached out and offered her a part-time job and she accepted. And we were lucky enough to have her with us part-time through the school year, which was great. While we were in that stretch, we realized pretty fast that we really needed full-time help. You know, we had Molly O'Neill come on, who's extraordinary. Again, I surround myself with these incredible minds and then just kick back and hitch my wagon to their stars. Molly is a genius and she's, you know, she's based in Brooklyn and we're out here and making sure that we're in good communication and that we have a lot of back and forth and that I'm giving her the support that she needs to become the badass agent that she wants to be and that we're all benefiting from our shared hive mind. Like it just became really clear that we needed someone full time. And so we recently hired an assistant who is literally changing our lives on the daily. Every day I come in and I'm like, oh my gosh, what would I do without you? So there was a ramp up period there because, you know, I wasn't paying someone full time initially, you know, in some ways that was helpful, but honestly, like we should have, that was like so driven by situation. If we were just going by productivity and need, we should have hired a lot sooner. Internships are sticky in California anyway. And they're also sticky for me just personally, because I was a self-supporting person in publishing in New York City. I mean, when I started at William Morris, the pay was literally $400 a week. And my husband was an actor. So like, you know, and he, he started working really fast. And we've always been very fortunate that that's a real thing. But certainly when we first moved there, there was not like a super financially lucrative position we were in. And we were making it work. I have so much sympathy for and certainly an inclination toward people who are not doing this because their parents are floating them the whole way. And again, no disrespect to those people because it's not like you're not still hustling, but I feel like a lot of what you see in terms of the problems with representation in publishing are directly tied to this culture of free internships and like living in expensive cities. And so for me, I worry about, am I continuing to privilege the already privileged by relying heavily on that? And also like people should get paid for their work is the other (laughs) part of that. If you believe that for your authors, then you kind of have to like put your money where your mouth is. And like, if you're going to be a feminist employer, like pay people for their work. We have not really done that so far. I also worry a little bit. I think there's, you know, it's a different time now than it was. And there are a lot of agents out there who like it on paper. They're like, I worked for such and such agency. But then you find out that they were interns and all they really did was read slush. But now they're using that agency's name and then they don't necessarily know what they're doing. And so, again, like, I don't know how to teach people to agent long distance. I only know, and most of the stuff we need help with is, like, physically tied. Like, our our assistant is here with us. So, like, with Molly, it's different. Molly worked in the industry. She was an agent before. We've known each other as long as I've been in the business. I wasn't teaching her. (laughs) You know, she's a fully-fledged human who is partnering with us and that we're, is part of our team. But I don't really know how to bring up a new agent remotely. So that's another piece of it is just that I came up through a model that was very like, I listened in on my boss's phone calls, I processed every piece of correspondence, I had full access to their emails, like, you there's just like a level of transparency that I don't know how you do if you're not physically present. So I mean, I know there are other agencies where everyone's remote, and it's like not a big deal, and everyone's fine. But I'm sure there are people who figured this out. And like, kudos to them and mad props. But I, for my own personal peace of mind, and again, maybe for the right person with the right mix of background or whatever, like it would be a non-issue. 
and I would make a way. But for now, you know, you only know what you know. And that's what I know. And I also know that it would make me very uncomfortable to have somebody that I felt like did not actually get a real look. Also for confidentiality reasons, like a lot of our client stuff is really sensitive. And you can't just like share that with someone that you don't know, and is like your quote unquote intern for like five hours a week or whatever. My clients are everything to me. And so protecting them is also a big part of that choice. So it's tough trying to figure out the right balance. So I, my one thing I will do, like I do informational interview calls. I'm big on giving back and finding ways to encourage the like next generation of people, especially because I didn't go to a fancy school. I didn't have any connections. I didn't have like, I had nothing and I made it. And so I feel like it's important to give back in those ways. But as of now, that has not looked like internships for me because I can't figure out exactly the right way to do it. That both feels like I'm honoring my commitments as an employer and also like is of benefit to both me and the person. So absolutely understood. Okay, Holly, I'm going to try and squeeze in as many listener questions as possible. Let's do it. Okay, so first it's Vanessa Valiente. She said, yay, with so many exclamation marks. (laughs) She says, I am so excited for this one. Holly is one of my dream agents, heart emoji and another heart emoji. What's on your current manuscript wish list? Any personal pet peeves on queries? So I will just be very straight. I have not been requesting very much. I have a lot of books right now that are in stages where they're taking a lot of time management wise. So I just have not been in the slush. So if there's anybody listening that has gotten a pass from me, it is probably me, not you. (laughs) Like it really, I really do want to say that there is a point where you're like, I would be doing everyone involved a disservice if I pursued this right now. But in terms of on our manuscript wish list, I mean, Taylor and Molly are super actively acquiring. They're both in expansion and growth mode. So a lot of what I've been doing has just been supporting them. But, you know, you never say never because I like I signed something on maternity leave two years ago. That was Jasmine Guillory, whose book The Wedding Date you might have heard of if you're a romance person. Yeah. So, I mean, I, every time that I'm like, no, I'm definitely not signing things. People make me a liar. We don't see that much in our slush with Latinx protagonists, which is weird. Like we work in LA and so we're kind of like, that's a weird thing that feels like we should do something about. So like we've been really hungry for like a Jane the Virgin-y rom-com or just, yeah, like an LA set rom-com. Rom-com is like kind of a thing over here. We've obviously got like a lot of skin in that game, both on the YA side and on the adult side. So that's something that we're always looking for. I mean, I think for me, like because my list is fairly full, something just has to like really surprise me and grab me. Like there's this book called The Bird and the Blade that just came out this summer by an author, Megan Bannon, who's a debut author. She was a a teen librarian at the time that I signed and sold it. And it is a historical, like epic, it feels like fantasy, but it's not really magical, that is inspired by the same source material as the opera Turandot. So it's like a road trip across the Mongolian empire full of secrets and surprises. And I would literally never have been like, you know what I want? A YA Turando, yeah, but it wrecked me. I couldn't stop reading it. I sobbed. I'm not a crier in books. That's like not, I don't, that's just not a thing that happens for me usually. I sobbed and it surprised me. And so I think that's now, like, I can't really say like, oh, I need more middle grade adventure stories. Although I kind of do need a little bit more middle grade adventure. But anyway, but like, it's less categorical and more surprise and amazed me. And I think I just want 
I want stuff that feels fresh and new and different. I'm not a like trendy agent. I totally sat out dystopia like that. I just like waved. I was just selling high fantasy the whole time that dystopia was a trend. That doesn't drive me. And I think especially being in LA, I don't like, I'm not watching what every other agent is doing and being like, oh, I got to get in on that. Like we just, I think all three of us are unified in like having very clear senses of what we're good at and honing in on like doing those things incredibly well. And so that's what I'm looking for. That's super unhelpful, but I want to be delighted. And it has to just hit that weird resonance for me of I am the one who will sell this the best. That's super helpful. Thank you so much for answering that. Now, next, we're going to jump into Catherine Locke. I'd love to know how you strategize career planning with your authors. Ooh, that's a great question. Right? It really is different author to author because what every author wants is going to be different. Like there are some authors who will straight up be like world domination. I'm like, sure, coming right up. And then there are other authors who are like, I just want to stay published. And you're like, cool. Okay. Like I, I think it, it's also about like not importing my own understanding of like my own sense of what success looks like onto an author because like there is no one size fits all. And I have a lot of authors who are really different And so my job is to think about what they want, what matters to them, who they want to be career wise, like what kinds of stories do they want to have the capital to tell? Like, is there a reach book that if they were a certain amount of, you know, we we know that whatever we do, you're going to get that many books out the door. So now that's the time when you can do the book of your heart that you've been dying to do, but that is maybe a little bit weird and out of the box. Like, okay, let's build toward that. Is it that you want to be really diversified and you have a lot of ideas and you need someone to help you shape like which of them do you pursue? That's a kind of author I work really well with. Um, I have a lot of authors who write in a lot of genres. And so helping them walk the line between like diversification and burnout is a big part of what I do and like how I help people. Um, So I think it all starts with the author and then you bring to bear on that your experience of the market and your understanding of publishing as a business overall. This is where I feel so much further ahead of the game than I used to because there's a certain point where like if you just, you, you haven't been in the right rooms to know what kinds of conversations are going on behind the scenes until you have books that have performed at a certain level and then you suddenly are like, right, okay, so much of this makes so much more sense because I understand the publisher side of it more deeply. So like that's something where every experience and every success that I have for my authors builds on each other and gives me more data points and more information to bring back to my other clients, not in a like, oh, well, XYZ author got XYZ, but in a like, okay, so if a house is pushing a book, like here's, here are the things that will, that will feel like, and here are the things that we would be looking for. And like, here's what we could expect out of a good marketing plan. And here's a marketing plan that maybe needs a little bit of oomph. Um, And, you know, we're super involved, all three of us in that road to publication process for our clients. You know, sometimes you have books where like, it's the third book in a series and everybody kind of knows what the deal is. And so you don't need to do the full like dog and pony show for the, you know, an author comes in and we all do a marketing meeting or whatever. But like, so it it doesn't, it's not even about like being overly aggressive all the time. Like sometimes everyone's cool and we can all just be cool and like everything's fine. Um, But for those ones where, you know, your author isn't getting enough information, like there are things we can do to help get them more information and also like back channels that we can work to, fill in the gaps about like maybe why that author isn't getting the information they need. So that it really all starts from the author. And then it's about just like which of our bag of tricks we're going to pull out and figure out what to do. 
we can't guarantee that like stuff won't go wrong, <laughs> but we can guarantee that we will be there to help contextualize it for the client. Cause I think that's a lot of, there are two big problems in like publishing from the author side. One is lack of information. And I'm preaching to myself too, cause it sometimes is like so much easier to just do the thing. And then you're like, Oh, right. I should tell my author that I did the thing. So I'm sympathetic to why this happens from the house side. Cause if you're working really hard doing the thing, it can be hard to find the time to tell the author you did the thing. But if you don't tell the author, then you've got a freaked out author and you don't get any points for having done right by them. So like, that's a place where we can help somewhat sand down that rough edge. And then the other problem is lack of context. So like you can get that information and then have no idea if it's good or bad. And so we can tell an author like it's 10,000 copies, good or bad, because the answer could be really different depending on the goals for the book and their position within the house and what kind of book it is and what format it's in. So we, we are there to give that kind of information and to help our authors make sense of what they're experiencing in regard to like what they, where they want to go. Okay. That's super helpful. Okay. Do you mind if we could wrap up with one final listener question? Yeah, sure. We can do a couple if you want. I'm okay for, for time. Oh my gosh, you're amazing. Okay. Okay. So let me squeeze this in super quick. Jade May Hemming. It's kind of coming off of what Catherine Locke asked. So Jade asked, uh, well, first of all, she said, I love Holly, all caps and heart emojis. She's an absolute dream agent of mine. I'd love to ask her aside from writing, what is it about a client that you look for specifically or connect with in order to build a long-term author agent relationship? So it's kind of like coming off of um, Katie's question. Mm -hmm. Um, And then her follow-up question was, once you've sign it a client how do you approach plans for their career as an author but maybe there's some way that jade phrased it might bring something else out yeah those are really good questions um i mean i think you know all good agents are a little bit chameleons because we're working with different people and so you work with people where they are and how they are i have some clients where it like took a minute to figure out that like on email, like they're super abrupt emailers. And so like, okay, if I want to, like, I just have to know that that is how the email might feel. But then when we talk, everything's fine. And so if there's, if I'm feeling like there's attention, I should jump, jump to phone. Um, and frankly, like that's my preferred thing anyway, if it's feelings, I want to be on the phone. I don't want to be on email. So there's a little bit of that. I think good agents can give and take with people, um, and kind of meet people where they are and like give people what they need. I think that my clients, it's funny when you, when you've been doing this for a while, like your clients kind of vibrate on a similar frequency (laughs) in a weird way. Like you're like, yeah, that person just like that person feels like the kind of person I will work well with. It wouldn't necessarily make sense from the outside (laughs) because those people might present really differently. But there's something about I think you attract the clients that are like meant to be with you. And I'm a very like I'm a very chill like when I get again, I haven't been offering a ton. But when I do, I'm a very chill, like, offerer. I don't, like, ask. Maybe I should. It might be helpful. I don't really ask, like, who the other people are. I don't really, like, try to, like, sell myself in any significant way, which, again, maybe I should be doing. Like, maybe I should be more self-promotional. But I tend to believe that people get the vibe (laughs) and they can tell. And I also trust and respect authors and their knowledge of themselves and their, even if they can't articulate it, that they can feel the person that they feel safe and comfortable with. And that's such a big part of what we're asking authors to do. There's such trust there. And I think that's why it's so scary when like weird things, like all the weird things that have gone on the last month within the agenting community, that stuff feels really scary. But I think that as long as you come from a place of like listening to your true voice and knowing what feels right to you, that's a big 
thing for me. So I think that the people that I work with well tend to know themselves pretty well. And like, they tend to be pretty ambitious, but also very grateful. I don't have divas. I don't have drama queens. That's not really my jam. I have a lot of people who care deeply about the work and who have big goals for themselves, but that are very like self-driven versus others driven. It's not about competing with other people. It's about being the biggest and best version of themselves. Mm, oh, that's so good. Okay. It's funny that you kind of mentioned like, you know, the, the stuff that's been happening this past month, because the next question from Stephanie, I, she said, in light of the relatively recent scandal with fraudulent agents, how do authors protect themselves from predatory agents or even identify literary agencies that aren't having the author's best interests in mind, especially because anyone can start up a literary agency or call themselves a literary agent. She went on to also ask if one of your authors writes something you don't represent, what happens? Do they get moved over to another agent in your agency that does represent that genre or do they have to look for a new agent? Yeah. I mean, the the bad agent thing is like a real pickle because you kind of have two, right? Like two that have come to prominence and the, the one of them that is still employed. I mean, I think you can look at the like circumstance there and the like relationships, shall we say, and that's not so mysterious. And the other one, it seems like now, like one of the tricky things about this is, right, we always say, like, look at the deals. And it seems like now a lot of the deals that were coming out of that agency were things that the authors had, like, already procured, like those re-up deals. And so it looked like there was a volume of deals that there wasn't actually. So, man, I it's really hard to know what to tell people. It's also hard because the real thing, this is, I'm going to get in trouble for saying this on a podcast, get ready, Taylor and Molly are like, going to sharpen their knives. There are fewer good agents than people want there to be. Like, all the people who are represented right now, if we got rid of all the agents who were like marginal to bad, all of those people could not be represented. And like, that is just the God's honest mathematical truth. And that's awful. And like, it puts a pit in my stomach to say, because some of those people like deserve so much better. Um, but I, and I don't know what the fix is. Like, I don't, I don't know what the fix is. I mean, I think the AAR helps as far as I know. Well, but even like one of, one of the people in question, probably, actually, I don't think they are AAR members from when I worked there. But I mean, the AAR maybe is a, a fix, the, the agents association, that you can double check membership there. But again, like, I don't know how, I don't know if it is policeable. Because the other thing is, you know, YA Twitter was very big on this, but like bad agents are a tale as old as time. What's different is that like the end game is less clear here. But like, there are, if you go back, you know, like, I can remember a lot of scandals within just my 15 years in publishing of like, people who like literally made off with client funds. And I can think of one where not only did the person come back into the business, but he, because of course he got a book deal. Like, okay, so, you know, like we don't, clearly we're not doing a great job of policing this, but I also don't know, I don't know what the fix is. I don't have a good answer on that. I don't, yeah, I think it's, I think a lot of it is like looking, and I, I touched on this a little bit and me working this out is what, how, how that Twitter thread happened. I think you can trust your gut and I think you can trust, are you feeling like you're having to talk yourself into this person? Or do you have a clear sense that like this is someone who will advance your career? Because I think 
I've been trying to listen to the people who've come out on the other side of these and all of them have said, and maybe this is hindsight and like knowing what they know now, but all of them have said it didn't feel right, but so-and-so had deals. So like, I just told myself it was okay. And I think that hopefully if anything comes out of this, it will be the empowering of authors. I, I feel like if there's a thread of this whole conversation, it's that, but authors have so much more power than they use. And that made me feel really sad when people were talking about like, you know, and these poor authors and like, think of the authors. And I was like, yes, like, I'm very sad for the authors who were impacted because it is like a terrible thing. But I'm actually even sadder that we've created a world in which authors don't understand that they have the power that they control, like they without them, we are nothing. I get it because like you're sitting alone writing and like, it's all very, uh, and writers have a lot of feelings about like, whether people will like their stuff. And I get why those dynamics are the way they are, but it also makes me so deeply sad because writers really do have so much more power than they use. And if people take anything away from this whole thing, I want it to be own that power. And also like, we will do what we can (laughs) to change the systems, but your internal voice and your internal belief in your work is everything. And you can't let some Yahoo on the internet, like neg you into not listening to that. Okay. That's really helpful. Thank you for being so honest and transparent about that. I really Mm. appreciate that. Uh, I hope you don't get um, that knife towards you from (laughs) your colleagues right now, but really, truly thank you so much for that. Cause I know there's been a lot of concern about this. I mean, of course I'm grateful that Stephanie asked that question and even more grateful that you answered it very, very honestly. Her second part to her question was also if one of your authors writes something you don't represent, what happens? Do they get moved over to another agent in your agency that does represent that genre or do they have to look for a new agent? I've never had anybody come up with something so wackadoodle that I like was like, I literally have no idea what to do with it. Like if somebody writes a mystery novel, like I've sold mystery novels, somebody writes nonfiction, I've sold nonfiction. I'm not like so specialized that things are that weird and shocking to me. Like, so it hasn't come up yet. I don't know what I would do if it did. I think it would just be case by case and depending on who the client was. If somebody writes a book that's a thriller, but there's still some like continuity with what the other things they've done are like, great. But if somebody's writing like military thrillers, and that's all they foresee writing for the rest of time, and my contacts aren't a great fit, then maybe we agree that like, this is an inflection point, because like careers change, right? So somebody who's a great agent for you, at one stage of your career might not be a great fit for what you need later down the road, that can happen. So I think it would just depend on the circumstance and the situation and what it was and like how long standing our relationship was and a lot of factors. But I think for most agents who are generalists, they usually will do their best to service the client so long as they feel like their relationships are such that it's not doing the client a disservice. Super helpful. And let's wrap it up with Alison Doherty's question. She says, I'm curious about what your suggestions are for writers when they are on submission with editors. And what do you do when a client's book doesn't sell? Oh, it's the worst. It's the worst. We shake our fists at the sky and rue the day. And then you try to figure out why. Sometimes it's just you missed the market, either like too soon, too late. Sometimes it's that this manuscript isn't quite ready, but the next one probably will be, you know, I think you have to look at why something like to the best of your knowledge. And again, this is based on like your agent's understanding of the market and what you get back. And like, for me, you know, most of the time, the people that I'm submitting to are people I'm pretty close with. And so 
it's easy if we get into a weird sticky spot and I can't kind of make heads or tails of it. Like I'll pick up the phone and say, Hey, you know, you said this kind of thing. Can I extrapolate accurately? Like, this is what you're feeling. (laughs) People will kind of, you know, again, off the printed page often give you, you know, a little bit more information if they don't already. I mean, again, a lot of people that I work with know me well enough to know that they could just be really honest when they replied. And so we'll have really good information and we can kind of look at that and say, okay, here's just what we think is going on. But yeah, it's usually, it's, it's no one's favorite thing, especially early on in my career. I had a lot of people where we didn't sell the first book, but then we sold the person. We sold their next thing or someone who saw that was like, hey, you know what they would be great for? Could they do this kind of book? So in a good agent relationship, not selling a book is not a red flag. But like having a strategy for what you do next and where you go from there, even if the strategy is just like, okay, let's write another book. We got comped out. There were other books in the pipeline we didn't know about that are too similar, like whatever it is. Okay, so here's how we'll try to sidestep that going forward. But generally speaking, that's, you know, it's frustrating. It's we're working unpaid too. So like, it's not the goal. (laughs) Like, it's always better if you can sell the book. If I had given up on people at that stage, my list would not include a lot of people that I would be really sad for it to not include. Mm, Okay, gotcha. Super quick for the first part of Allison's question about any suggestions for writers when they're on submission, do you usually tell them like, hey, just take a break now, go, go, um, I don't know, take a weekend off for yourself and just like, uh, try to enjoy your moment uh, while waiting? Um, (laughs) Or do you tell them to like work on a new project? Because I know I hear from the listeners, it's like a very nerve wracking process. So yeah. Oh, it's the worst. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, just know that like we're in it two times three, you know, if we have like three different projects out, like we're right there with you. Yeah. I tell people to like take up yoga or knitting or like something soothing because you just never know. Like I've had books sell overnight. I've had books sell like in a year and it just depends and you can never totally guarantee which one it's going to be. So you know, obviously you would rather it be sooner than later. Um, but yeah, I, I tell people to like try to find self-care tactics that they can rely on, um, like healthy self-care tactics. It's easy to be like, crack open the bottle of wine and like hit it. But you know, you want to have something that's sustainable and that like moves you closer to your goals. Although I'm not here to judge if that is, if maybe you're studying for your sommelier exam, in which case crack that bottle of wine. But, you know, like finding ways to care for yourself, both artistically and personally. And then I think you can also like I think working on something else is really healthy. The tricky part is I tell people, like, don't start writing book two because you just don't know. And I'm sort of weirdly superstitious. So once we have the deal, like, yes, switch gears and start writing book two. But in the meantime, I think it's it's a good time to write something that's just for you that doesn't feel like a career move that feels like a chance to get back to like why you started this whole thing in the first place. So I, it's often a time that I tell people to like, go explore that like sassy project that's been giving you side eye that doesn't make any sense professionally, but you've always kind of wanted to play with. This is a great moment to do that. Cause I think staying plugged into the pure, like your reasons why is a, is a really powerful thing. Oh my God. Holly, you've been amazing. Two quick questions I ask every guest at the end of the podcast. Why don't you leave it off with a book that you recommend, whether that's business book or craft book for writers, and then where we can find you on social media? Sure. So I will, I'm going to think for a second about what I recommend <laughs> for writers because um, I feel like it changes by the day. Oh, no, I actually know what it is. It's an evergreen. I always recommend it. Steal Like an Artist by Austin <gasps> 
Um, oh, nice. Okay. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. super easy to like parse because it's small format. You can flip through it. You can like pick it up and like just be in it. But I think especially for creators, it's one of the things that I think balances creation and like life in a social media age really well. You can't really just be like this pure little brain in a jar creating stories. You do have to like share that work if what you want is to have that work widely read. So I think it is a really nice balance of the creation and then also the sharing. So I really recommend that to people. And then where you can find me on the internet, I'm on Twitter at HRoot. We are on Instagram at Root Literary, I think, or maybe it's Root Lit. I don't know. Someone, I'll email you and you can put the right link in. I'm the worst. If you search Root Literary, (laughs) we're in there. Um, You know what, though? It is a real step that I don't know that because I am not running it anymore. And that is great. (laughs) Good for you. Uh, See, adding to the team. Boom. Delegating. I love that. Yes, that's why it actually looks good now. (laughs) Instead of just being like, a donut, a book cover, the end. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah. Holly, you are freaking awesome. Thank you so much for your time. Seriously, this this whole freaking conversation just made me the happiest human being and you just fulfilled my entrepreneurial hole in my heart. So I appreciate <laughs> you so much for that and letting me pick your brain and you being like a mentor to me. And this is really just such an inspiring conversation and also for going so in depth and being so transparent with the listeners questions too. I really, really appreciate it. And I know the listeners are going to freak out. You have no idea. So I'm I very excited. Be, I can't wait to be drummed out of the business on the internet. It'll be great. Oh my God. Yes. Oh my gosh. I'm so excited. You better brace yourself. And that wraps up our episode with the one and only Holly Root of Root Literary. Holly, you are incredible. I seriously had the best time hearing all about your journey and the entrepreneurial side of Root Literary. Thank you so much for that inspiring conversation, and I'm so thrilled we got a chance to do this. Storytellers, thank you so much for hanging out and listening in as always. Please be sure to say hi to Holly on Twitter at HRoot. Check out Root Literary on Twitter at Root Literary. To access Holly's show notes page, head over to 88cupsofteacom slash podcast slash Holly dash root. Don't forget you get the chance to win our limited edition 88 cups of tea tote bag that was printed for our three year anniversary and our 88 cups of tea pop socket. And the prize also comes with exactly 45 seconds of airtime to talk about your current writing project in the intro of Tamara Pierce's upcoming episode releasing in October. The deadline is at 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Sunday, September 30th. So you have from now until the end of the month to enter for your chance to win, and I'll be selecting two winners for this contest. For all the directions, jump back to the top of this episode and keep an ear out for the five directions. Have a wonderful and super productive rest of your week, and I'll catch you next Thursday. Hey guys, it's me again. Thanks so much for listening in on 88 Cups of Tea. Go create something magical today, and I'll catch you in the next episode. Bye.